Israel has expanded its ground operations into central Gaza and issued mass evacuation calls for about one-third of Gaza's map. That squeezes Palestinians into smaller and smaller zones farther south. Top UN officials are warning there's no safe place for Gazans to go. It's Tuesday, December 5th, and this is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. That story is coming up. Also, Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville says he will end his hold on most military promotions, his hold that's lasted for months and drawn the ire of his colleagues and that of the U.S. military. And people who shout at each other on social media rarely change anyone's mind, but this kind of engagement does do something else. It will make your ability to empathize with people who have the other opinion drop down to zero. More on how social media increases polarization coming up. It's 401. News headlines and Wall Street numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville released his holds on hundreds of military promotions today. NPR's Deirdre Walsh reports his protest over abortion policy ended without any change to the Pentagon's procedures. Tuberville placed a hold on military promotions in February to try to roll back the Pentagon's policy of reimbursing service members who travel for abortion services. Fellow Republicans criticized his blockade, saying it damaged military readiness. Tuberville told reporters he was releasing holds on all promotions except those for four-star generals. And he admitted he didn't impact policy but put a spotlight on the issue. We didn't get the win that we wanted. We've still got a bad policy. We've tried to stand up for the taxpayers of this country. Tuberville's retreat means the Senate can approve the backlog of more than 400 promotions in one block. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, the Capitol. The presidents of three elite colleges testified on Capitol Hill today about anti-Semitism on campus. NPR's Alyssa Nadwerney reports this comes as hundreds of campuses have seen protests, backlash, and even violence in the last two months, stemming from the brutal October 7th attack by Hamas and Israel's all-out war on Hamas in Gaza. The three campuses represented on the Hill include the University of Pennsylvania, MIT, and Harvard. And their presidents had similar messages for lawmakers. They condemned the rise of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia on campus. They reiterated free speech is vital on campus. And they admitted how challenging balancing that and the safety of their campuses has been. Here's Claudine Gay, Harvard's president. I have sought to confront hate while preserving free expression. This is difficult work, and I know that I have not always gotten it right. The hearing was at times combative, but over and over again, the college leaders reiterated their commitments to keep their campuses inclusive and safe. Alyssa Nadwerney, NPR News. Last month, Moody's credit rating agency sounded a warning about U.S. government debt. Now, as NPR Scott Horsley reports, the agency is waving a similar caution flag about China. Moody's bond rating agency says while China's national credit rating remains unchanged, the outlook has turned negative as the country wrestles with slowing economic growth, a troubled property sector, and financial strains on local governments. Unionized workers in Denmark are expressing solidarity with their Swedish counterparts in an effort to win union recognition from Tesla. After Swedish dock workers blocked delivery of Tesla cars, there had been speculation they'd go through Denmark, but Danish transport workers are also demanding the automakers sign a collective bargaining agreement to cover Scandinavian service centers. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. 
Wall Street ended the day in mixed territory. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Closing arguments have wrapped up in a Boston federal court case to block JetBlue from buying Spirit Airlines. The U.S. Justice Department sued to stop the nearly $4 billion deal. It argues such a merger could hurt customers by eliminating Spirit's budget fares. The JetBlue says the sale would help it compete with larger airlines. The largest Boston police union has agreed to a new contract with the city. The tentative five-year agreement from the Boston Police Patrolmen's Association now heads to the city council for a vote. The old contract expired in 2020. The new deal increases wages, streamlines processes for police detail, and makes it easier to remove officers from the force for poor conduct. And Massachusetts is seeking more than $1 billion from the federal government to help replace the Sagamore Bridge on Cape Cod. The grant would cover about half of the estimated $2 billion project. In the forecast, cloudy tonight. Some snow flurries possible by tomorrow morning, just enough to make for a messy commute. Temperatures in the mid-30s for a high tomorrow. Clouds hanging out through the day. Thursday, though, should be sunny with highs stuck in the mid-30s, which is where it is right now. 36 in Boston at 405. WBUR supporters include the Langloth Foundation, supporting justice, equity, and opportunity for all people to foster and sustain safe and healthy communities. Learn more at langloth.org. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. The journalism you get from WBUR depends on a strong foundation of listener support. And that's why your monthly gift is crucial. Make a modest monthly contribution that will have deep meaning and a big impact every day. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Please do call right now because we are fast winding up this fun drive. It is over tomorrow. And uh, I'm Lisa Mullins. Happy to be joined by the all-being of time, space, and dimension for fundraising, Jay Clayton, who's going to give us the latest. Hi, Jay. Oh, I would love to be all that, Lisa. (laughs) Yes, you are. But what I can do is this. I can tell you that uh, time is quickly running out in this fundraiser, and the time is going to go, of course, at its pace. The goal is up to all of us who care. And we've now got $167,000 to raise between now and about this time tomorrow night. Now, we can do that, but not if we all wait until the last minute. So we are encouraging you and politely asking you to please consider giving right at this moment so that WBUR has the resources that it takes to keep moving through this time that we are all just leaning into and depending on this journalism so much. Listener support is the largest share that funds it all, so we're asking you to just think about what WBUR means to you and think about what you can give and go ahead and get that gift to us right now at WBUR.org or 1-800-909-9287. Boston is fortunate to have options when it comes to news sources, but local journalism is in decline. I'm Ari Shapiro. WBUR is doing everything it can to bring you meaningful, nuanced stories from greater Boston. But WBUR can't do its job without your financial support. We need every listener who can give to give a little money every month. Become a member at WBUR.org. Please do it now. If you can become a monthly subscriber, we would so appreciate that, uh, whatever you would like to pledge. If, for instance, all things considered, listening to it every day, every other day is worth $10 to you a month, um, if you would hand out $10 and then you're set for the month to come, does that sound 
pretty much fair. If it does, then please make a $10 a month pledge. If it's more, then we would certainly love that as well. If it's a one-time pledge, we would appreciate that. We're just asking you to be as generous as you can before we wrap up this fund drive. It would be, um, we think, a shame if if you uh, get everything that you can out of WBUR and realize that we don't have commercials, that we rely so much on listeners for our operating budget, the vast majority of our operating budget, and then just kind of look the other way and didn't do anything to keep us strong, to keep us going, because we all benefit from that. So please call now or go online. Online is WBUR.org. The phone number is one 800 And when you give right now, you can get what I humbly consider one of the best thank you gifts ever in public radio, and that is the Eton radio. This is one of those radios that, yeah, it runs on batteries and electricity, but it also runs on its own little generator when you don't have batteries or electricity, say during a power outage. This way, you still have access to the vital information that you need, and you're helping us bring you that information every day, power outage or not, when you support WBUR and get that radio from us. So pick one of those up as our thanks when you give right now at WBUR.org or at 1-800-909-9287. You're going to be hearing so many stories today that we think uh, even without the Eton Radio, and we hope you do make a pledge and get that as a result, um, but even without that, we know that you would be uh, grateful for what you hear and hopefully happy to pay for it. Um, as we're hearing, uh, Alabama's Tommy Tuberville has dropped his hold on most um, military promotions, and that is something that he's been hanging on to for, I think it's more than six months now. We're going to be hearing more about that. We're going to be hearing about uh, Gazans who have been told to go into central, uh, uh, or actually leave central Gaza, and the mass evacuations that are being called for, and the question of where Gazans are supposed to be going now because it's a smaller and smaller amount of area. Going to be talking about uh, whether or not social media posts can actually change public opinion. Studies say no, but they increase polarization. So much that's coming up today. Breaking news, hard news, lighter news, and features as well. It's all part of daily life. And if we're part of your daily life, and for most of you listening, I think you are, then decide what that's worth to you. And don't let the fundraiser end without your contribution of some sort, a one-time contribution or a monthly contribution. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. The fund drive is over tomorrow. And, you know, just listening to the share those stories, Lisa, these are obviously serious times, and they require serious journalism. They require the best in all of us for you. It just means giving what you can. $167,000 to go as the hours in this fundraiser quickly evaporate. So give what you can as quickly as you can as we listen to All Things Considered. 1-800-909-9287 and WBUR.org. Thank you so much. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington with The Heart Sellers by Lloyd Suh and directed by May Adralis. Set on Thanksgiving 1973 through December 23rd, HuntingtonTheater.org and Ocean State Job Lock. Committed to fighting hunger in the Northeast by donating food to local food banks and pantries. OceanStateJobLot.com This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. 
Every so often, it feels like one topic consumes all of social media. Maybe it's Black Lives Matter, or a few months after that, the presidential election. In these posts, everyone seems to retreat to their corners, taking positions for or against something, like abortion. Look, America, you're not James Bond. You don't have a license to kill, which is what you're doing when you have an abortion. Forced pregnancy is literally a war crime, and it shouldn't be forced upon anyone, regardless of socioeconomic status. For two months now, the unavoidable topic on social media has been Israel's war against Hamas in Gaza. And although it can feel like these posts are shouting at each other from opposite sides of an arena, even people with the strongest disagreements seem to share one central belief. This is a PSA that we need shared heavily. People listen very strong right now. You've been lied to. We all have. That belief is, if the post is just compelling enough, it'll change someone's mind. I wondered, is that true? Can the right TikTok or Instagram story or Facebook post actually persuade someone to change their position? Well, in 2020, a group of more than a dozen academics from all over the U.S. looked into this question. I'm Jennifer Pan, a professor of communication at Stanford. I'm Andy Guess, and I'm an assistant professor of politics and public affairs at Princeton University. Professors Pan and Guess were two of the lead authors on a study published in the journal Science. And so what we did as part of the study is offer users on Facebook and Instagram the opportunity to participate. And then we uh, randomly assigned them to a number of interventions that changed their Facebook and Instagram experience. So with the user's permission, the researchers changed the algorithm or the number of reshares people saw or whether people saw dissenting views when they scrolled through their feeds. And part of what we wanted to understand was whether the way in which people were shown content on these platforms affected their opinions and attitudes and beliefs and even downstream political behaviors. Downstream political behaviors like volunteering for or donating to a candidate. And can you say how often you found people in these studies actually changing their mind about something, thinking, well, I had been leaning towards voting for Donald Trump, but instead I think I'm going to vote for Joe Biden or the reverse. We do not find that at all in any of these three studies. Not at all. Not even a small percentage. No change in terms of vote choice. So in other words, when we looked at whether the mix of content that people uh, encountered and consumed and engaged with on these platforms affected what people then told us later on a survey or um, how they voted or whether they voted or the kinds of uh, participation in the campaign that they um, undertook, we we largely found um, very negligible impacts. Very negligible. But hey, political views can be hard to change, especially with candidates as different as Trump and Biden. So is it possible that if researchers used a topic where positions were less entrenched, people might be more likely to change their views? Yeah, so what we did is an online survey experiment in which we varied the number of likes and retweets that people see on a particular message. 
And these opinions were opinions about sort of COVID policies. Economist Juan Morales of Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, Canada, did his study early in the pandemic. People were just forming their opinions about the right balance between public health and the economy. He and his co-researchers used social media posts that said things like, wearing masks saves lives, or time to reopen safely, those sorts of things. So imagine now that we show you a set of tweets, and all the tweets that are, let's call them pro-economy, have a high number of likes, and all the tweets that are pro-public health have a low number of likes. And then we show another group of individuals, and we show them the opposite. Hmm. And then at the end of the study, we asked people, what do you think about closing businesses? What do you think about prohibiting gatherings? So did a lot of likes and retweets make a difference? What we find is that on average, the answer is no. Like the other studies, there are nuances and variations when you drill down into the findings. But when you look at the top line conclusions, all of this research pretty much lands in a similar place. Journalist Max Fisher went through piles of these studies for his recent book. I am the author of The Chaos Machine, the inside story of how social media rewired our mind and our world. Is it possible to say just like, yes, no, do social media posts change people's minds about things? So just looking at a post, no, not really. But interacting on social media, posting to a platform, getting feedback in the form of likes, shares, and replies, posting again over many cycles, that has been demonstrated to as something that can change your mind in ways that are very powerful, but also pretty narrow. Whoa. So you're saying a person seeing social media posts might not be affected by it, but the person who's actually doing the posting might change their mind as a result of posting? Oh, yeah. I mean, the platforms are designed. I mean, you have to remember, if people don't post on social media platforms, they're just empty. So they are designed to make you feel a compulsion to post on it and to have a very emotional experience when you post and when you get those responses from other people on the platform, likes, shares, retweets. And that is something because it taps into your social instincts that in any other context, we would call it a form of training. Help me understand this, because I might post to social media, the best part of a holiday meal is the side dishes, which is a belief I hold, and I'm posting it because I believe it. So how would posting that somehow change my opinion that side dishes are the best part of a holiday meal? Well, first of all, that's misinformation, and you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> So if you are posting about how great side dishes are and you get a thousand retweets and 3000 likes on that, you are going to feel this jolt of social affirmation that is way beyond anything that our brains have evolved for, right? Because our brains evolved for these very small communities, but in social media, we're in these huge communities, we get this instant feedback and that the scale of that social feedback will make you internalize that belief in the importance of Thanksgiving side dishes way more strongly than you'd had it before. So I won't suddenly become an advocate for the main course, but if my opinion that side dishes are the best had been a seven, I might become a 10. I'll get more dug in. And at the same time, if people start arguing with you, as I would, because you're egregiously wrong, that actually the main courses are the best part, then that 
back and forth in that interaction because I would have lots of people retweeting, you know, my post getting mad at you. You would have lots of people liking your post getting mad at me would polarize you much more strongly against main courses than you were before. And that gets to your question about can social media change your mind? We're not going to change each other's minds. You're not going to believe that main courses are the best. I'm not going to believe that side dish is the best because of our interactions, but we are both going to hold much stronger versions of those views. So here's the insidious part. Not only does posting on social media push our own views to the extremes. It will make your ability to empathize with people who have the other opinion drop down to a zero, which is not that relevant. We're talking about Thanksgiving, but you're talking about politics. Having a more extreme form of your pre-existing views can be pretty consequential. And we're also going to feel much more polarized so the research shows that this entire social media cycle of feeling attacked by some and affirmed by others shrinks our ability to feel compassion for those who disagree with us. Which raises a deeper question. If posting about current events on social media won't change someone else's mind, why do we keep doing it? So, I mean, part of it is that social media creates a compulsion to post on it. And this is something that has been proven in many studies. It's chemically addictive. But I think there's also a more human reason that we are all looking for a sense of agency. I mean, especially when the news is really scary, when there's something really big and terrible happening, like the conflict between Israel and Gaza, we want to feel a sense of you know, control, like we're doing something, we have some agency over what's happening. And when we post on it, everything about how the platforms work, tell us that we're, we're playing an incredibly important role, that we're doing something, that it really matters. So we post because social media makes us feel better until it doesn't. Right. And this is something they also show in studies over and over where people feel really distressed about the news that makes them much likelier to post, but then posting makes them feel more distressed. It often does not actually ease that sense of, you know, existential anxiety that led you to post in the first place. It's a bit like scratching a mosquito bite. The impulse is understandable. The momentary relief feels good. But longer term, scratching that itch won't help you heal. Nelson Mandela, the anti-apartheid icon, died 10 years ago today at the age of 95. He was South Africa's first democratically elected president, and he remains a larger-than-life figure in the country. But as Kate Bartlett reports, Mandela's African National Congress Party is failing to live up to his legacy. It's widely predicted to lose its majority in the upcoming election. Neo Makhopa, a writer from the Nelson Mandela Foundation, described some of the current problems facing the country. With an upward of 60% youth unemployment, the education crisis, gender-based violence, our energy crisis, young people don't feel saved, especially young people growing up in townships and other poorer areas. But despite South Africa's challenges, which most blame on the ruling ANC, this 10-year-old girl, born the year Mandela died, sums his legacy up neatly. I am Olvete Tlamini. Nelson Mandela was the first black president in South Africa. And just because of him, we live in this nice world. For NPR News, I'm Kate Bartlett in Johannesburg. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. 
and the Museum of Science. Experience the region's seasons, landscapes, traditions, and innovations in the giant screen production, The Heart of New England, mos.org. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR's All Things Considered. Senator Tommy Tuberville has been holding up military promotions for months. Today he backed down and said he will drop his blanket hold on most promotions. That story and much more is still to come. In business news, it was a lackluster day on Wall Street. The Dow lost about two-tenths of a percent. S&P fell less than a tenth of a percent, and the Nasdaq gained ground. It was up three-tenths of a percent. In the forecast, lots of clouds overnight tonight, down around 30 degrees. Could have some snow flurries early tomorrow, about a messy inch or so on the ground, right around drive time tomorrow. Overcast skies through the day, temperatures in the mid-30s. And then Thursday, back in the mid-30s, but we should see the sunshine. 36 degrees in Boston at 424. WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation, knowing that bringing people together is the best way to advance opportunity and equity in our city. The Boston Foundation is a convener, a research hub, and a civic leader. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science. MathWorks.com slash MOS. My name's Scott Detrow, and I host All Things Considered on the weekends. I really enjoy the challenge of considering all things. You know, you can be on the line with a senator, then you're shifting gears and you're talking to a musician, you know. For the bulk of my my career as a member station reporter, I was a statehouse reporter. So many things that affect people's lives are happening in those buildings. In just about every state, there's a public radio reporter there. It is a very challenging time to be a reporter. The business models that made journalism work for decades have gone up in smoke, and people increasingly just tune in to news sources that tell them what they want to hear. Public radio stations have really kind of stepped up in the middle of all of this to tell you the facts, to give you the information you need to make your own decisions. The whole NPR network is stronger with your support. Give to this station today, and thanks. In fact, we wouldn't be here without your support, certainly not without your listenership, and particularly with your without your support. There are, as Scott said, there are so many... Um, uh, media venues that have had to cut back so severely that some don't even have statehouse reporters in their capitals. We are fortunate to have Walt Wuthman, who is now doing the job and a fantastic job. We're going to hear from him later on today. Um, it's it's so necessary to follow what's happening in the state capitol, and it's unimaginable to think that there are some news outlets that don't have that. We're lucky to have it. We've placed a priority on it, and we've been able to do that with your support. You help us pay for it. So because we know you value WBUR and we, you value that kind of coverage, please Keep us strong. Keep us able to support the newsroom that we have right now and everything that goes beyond what you hear on the air at 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins here with Magna Chakrabarty. And you're lucky enough to be listening to a station, a public radio station that not only do we have currently, Walter, at the Statehouse. We've had a WBUR reporter at the Statehouse almost continuously for years and years and years. And they are and have been experts on all the kinds of policies and debates that are going on in the state house. Just want to tell you a super quick story about that. 
Many, many years ago, I had to uh, fill in for a couple of days at the State House for Martha Biebing, our, our veteran uh, reporter here at WBUR and also a healthcare expert. And Massachusetts was doing a lot of its health reform at that time. So one of the days when Martha wasn't there, there was a press conference and someone talked. I don't remember exactly who. But afterwards, all the other reporting uh, corps at the State House came up to me and said, <laughs> Oh, do you did you understand this? Did you understand that? I was like, no, <laughs> I'm just filling in for Martha. And they said, well, usually when we have a healthcare uh, press conference, we always ask Martha <laughs> afterward what it meant oh. because she is that good. So that that is literally what your contribution helps keep alive and healthy and working for you. Because as Scott said, things that happen at the state house must not be underreported. They have a more direct impact on your life than most other things. So when you call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org, it's that kind of depth and continuity that you're helping keep strong. Absolutely. And here's what we need to end the fund drive successfully. It's ending tomorrow, by the way. Whether or not we're successful depends on you and whether or not you can help us raise $166,000. That is how far we've come in this fund drive. That's what we need to um, uh, end it in the best possible way and end the year in the best possible way. And that means fortified to bring you all the news that we expect and the news that we need to plan for, but we don't even know the nature of the news coming up in the year to come. That's one of the things that we have to budget for. So here's the number, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Just pledge whatever you can afford for what you hear on WBUR, what you get at WBUR.org, our podcast, Circle Round, The Common, Endless Thread, Events at City Space, um, our uber-popular newsletters, and The Field Guide to Boston. All these things have been made possible because of your pledges in the past. So pledge now uh, to give us um, uh, the power to cover the stories and expand the way we need to expand for the year to come. Now, the hint of snow is there in the air. The weather has cooled off a bit, so it's definitely the end of the year. And I know that you're thinking about... You know, who or what organization is most deserving or do you think could benefit the most from your donations? There are many out there and we honor all their work. But if we made your list, now's the time to call 1-800-909-9287. We put every single dollar to work for you almost immediately. So either that number or go to WBUR.org. Thank you so much for those of you who already made a pledge. And if you haven't, there's still time to do it. Please give whatever you can. If it's a monthly pledge, please do that. A monthly support. If it's a one-time pledge, please do that. The fund drive is over tomorrow. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include The Lyric Stage. With Ken Ludwig's The Game's Afoot, this comedy mystery makes a memorable multi-generational holiday outing through December 17th. LyricStage.com and Brookline Bank, where financial institutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at BrooklineBank.com. Member FDIC. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The director of the FBI is calling on Congress to reauthorize a government surveillance tool set to expire at the end of the year. It allows the government to collect without a warrant the communications of targeted foreigners outside the U.S. FBI Director Christopher Wray warned Senate lawmakers that 
there would be devastating consequences for public safety if Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act is allowed to lapse. 702 allows us to stay a step ahead of foreign actors located outside the United States who pose a threat to national security. And the expiration of our 702 authorities would be devastating to the FBI's ability to protect Americans from those threats. This provision of the surveillance program was enacted back in 2008 after the 9-11 attacks. It's due to expire at the end of the month unless Congress votes to reauthorize it. North Dakota is appealing a recent federal court ruling about the state's legislative election map. It's the latest redistricting lawsuit that may make it harder to enforce voting protections against racial discrimination. Here's NPR's Hansi Luong. For decades, most lawsuits under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act have been filed by individuals and groups who do not represent the U.S. government. That includes the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa, the Spirit Lake Tribe, and individual Native American voters who challenged North Dakota's state legislative map. A federal judge struck down that map, which was approved by the state's Republican-controlled legislature, after finding the map dilutes the collective power of Native American voters in North Dakota. Now the state is asking to put that ruling on hold because a panel of the 8th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals found that private individuals and groups do not have the right to sue under Section 2. Republican state officials in Louisiana are also citing the panel's ruling to try to keep in place a congressional map that a judge found is likely to dilute the power of black voters. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. On Capitol Hill today, the presidents of Harvard and MIT face questions about anti-Semitic incidents on their campuses. As WBUR's Max Larkin reports, they condemned Hamas's attacks on Israel, but stopped short of promising to punish students who take part in pro-Palestinian protests. Today might be one of the toughest yet in the tenures of Harvard's Claudine Gay and MIT's Sally Kornbluth. For hours, members of a Republican-controlled committee have alleged that both stood by as anti-Semitism flourished at their schools since the war between Israel and Hamas began. Gay said that the past few weeks have been a delicate and imperfect balancing act. I have felt the bonds of our community strain. I have sought to confront hate while preserving free expression. This is difficult work, and I know that I have not always gotten it right. Both presidents drew a clear line between protected political speech and unacceptable incitements to violence. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Massachusetts now has $250 million more to help house families entering the state's emergency shelter system. The funding comes from the supplemental budget Governor Moore Healy signed last night. Family shelter provider Heading Homes Executive Director Danielle Ferrier says that she is both appreciative of the funding and excited about it. It lets the state and the provider community move forward on an emergency winter response. Um, All good news in those directions. The budget includes a requirement that overflow sites for families be set up by the end of this year. The Worcester Red Sox are getting a new majority owner. Sports ownership and management group Diamond Baseball announced the move today. Reports say the Woo Sox will remain the AAA affiliate of the Boston Red Sox and will continue to play at Polar Park. The transaction is expected to be complete before the end of the year. Diamond Baseball has also bought the New Hampshire Fisher Cats. They are the AA team for the Toronto Blue Jays. This is WBUR. The forecast is coming up. 
Forecast right now, in fact. Overnight tonight, look for clouds. Could have some snow flurries by early tomorrow morning, maybe just about an inch or so, making for a fairly messy commute tomorrow. Overnight lows around 30 degrees. And for tomorrow, should see clouds through the day, mainly dry afternoon time. Temperatures about 35 degrees. Thursday, bright skies, some sunshine, still chilly, staying in the mid-30s. 36 now in Boston at 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. And Sincere Foundation, which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces, and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at Sincere.com. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Hundreds of military service members waiting for a promotion can breathe a sigh of relief today. Alabama Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville announced today he's lifted his months-long hold on more than 400 nominations in a protest of a Pentagon policy about abortion. We didn't get as much out of it as we wanted, but again, when they changed the rules on you, I had no opportunity to to other than possibly down the road, a lawsuit. Change the rules, Anya. The Senate had been poised to pass a rare rules change just to end Tuberville's logjam. NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales is covering the story. Hey, Claudia. Hey, Ari. Catch us up on what triggered all of this and what Tuberville actually got for all of his effort. He didn't get much, and this is exactly the point that Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer raised while talking to reporters earlier today as he celebrated the news. He held out for many, many months hurt our national security, caused discombobulation to so many military families who have been so dedicated to our country and didn't get anything that he wanted. And the source of this grievance for Tuberville was this Pentagon policy that allowed service members who did seek abortion care to get financial support for related travel. So Schumer noting there that although Tuberville had this blockade for months, the change to this policy was not made. And as you heard Tuberville say at the top, perhaps a lawsuit is another recourse for him to try to sue and undo this plan. Well, I said that there were hundreds of nominations and promotions on hold. Do you know exactly how many people are going to be affected as a result of this announcement? Right. There will be many. He started this at the beginning of the year, so that resulted in more than 400 holds. A Defense Department spokesperson, Brigadier General Pat Ryder, told reporters on Tuesday that it was upwards of 455 nominations that were on hold currently. And if this 
this blockade had continued, the Senate was on track, members said, to see that number grow to 650. But we should note that Tuberville did not lift all of his holds today. About 11 nominations for four-star generals and above must still be taken up separately. That is, they can't be approved in one fell swoop like these others that were lifted, these more than 400. Now, Ryder, the Pentagon official, said these are key senior leadership positions for these higher-ranking holds that we're seeing. That includes vice chiefs of several services, several commanders, and that includes the commander of the U.S. Pacific Fleet, as well as the commander of U.S. Northern Command, Cyber Command, and Space Command. Why did Tuberville finally relent? Well, he was facing immense pressure from inside his own conference. GOP colleagues wanted him to lift his hold. Several of these colleagues, Republican military veterans in the Senate, this includes Joni Ernst of Iowa. She's an ex-Army officer, a combat veteran. They took to the floor over several sessions, very long, hours-long debates and fights on the floor in the middle of the day in the middle of the night, urging Tuberville to give this up. They kept telling him that the wrong people, service members, were being punished for a policy they did not create. And then last month, a Senate panel sent this rare resolution to the floor to change the rules to override Tuberville. So he was cornered. He had to make a decision on this or face this vote his colleagues did not want to take. But now they can move forward with these nominations that have been on hold instead. NPR's Claudia Grisales, thanks a lot. Thank you. Israel has expanded its military offensive farther into Gaza while it says it aims to eliminate Hamas. Troops are now in the home city of Gaza's top Hamas leader, and Palestinians who followed Israel's instructions and fled to that area are now fleeing again. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports on the latest bombardments and displacements. The night sky lit up in orange and yellow. Flares fell in an arc. Israel last night began bombarding the surroundings of Khan Yunus, Gaza's second biggest city. A freelance journalist filmed this from his home in a different part of central Gaza, Der el-Balah. An English teacher I know just fled that area, Bilal Shaber. Lots of things happened to me and my family. His high school-aged nephews were killed in a strike. He was running low on food and afraid to pick oranges from the trees in the yard because of drones in the sky. He fled before Israeli tanks arrived outside his home. By this new phase of the war, Israel is telling people to evacuate an area that's nearly a third of Gaza. Troops are now in Khan Yunis, the home city of Hamas leader Yahya Sinwar. Israel says it's trying to destroy Hamas's military capabilities after its October 7th attacks. It killed about 1,200 people and took hundreds of hostages. Israel does not have any choice but, but to hit the Hamas headquarters. Uh, and we know the headquarters and maybe the hostages uh, are in Khalilis. Avichai Mandelblit was formerly Israel's military advocate general and attorney general. I asked him about Israel's humanitarian responsibility in urging two million Palestinians to keep moving into smaller and smaller areas. He said they'll be displaced, but at least they'll move out of harm's way. I'm not telling it is uh, nice being there, but the only thing that we try to do is to protect their lives. If they're going to stay in Hanunis in such an intensity of combats, then, then lots of civilian life will be lost. The most important thing is that they will not die. Many have already died. The Gaza Health Ministry says more than 15,000 have been killed so far in the war. Many in areas where Israel told them they'd be safer. 
Now people are fleeing to Gaza's southernmost city of Rafah. NPR producer Anas Baba found some sawing wood to build temporary shelters in a children's playground. And he found streets teeming with the newly displaced. Cars had blankets and luggage strapped onto the roof. Many families that can, we can see here, just like having their own baggages and belongings, and they're just standing on the street, do not understand exactly where they're going. Hundreds of thousands followed Israel's calls to leave northern Gaza for their own safety. Now they've heeded Israeli calls to go even further south. One woman sat on the sidewalk with a rolled up carpet, pillows, and canned food. It was the third time she'd moved her family since the war began. And she even called out Hamas. She said, may God destroy Hamas and Ismail Haniyeh. That's Hamas's political leader, who left Gaza a few years ago. Who did Ismail Haniyeh lose? Did any of his family get martyred? His brothers, his nephews, his cousins, his wife, his kids? Not one. We are the ones who lost. She only gave her first name, Latifa, to avoid any repercussions of publicly criticizing Hamas in wartime. She spent last night sheltering in a school in Khan Yunus. Bodies were strewn outside. She said, imagine, dead martyrs, and animals come and gnaw at their bones. I wanted to retrieve a martyr, but I couldn't. Where are the countries of the world, she said. She named Egypt. The Egyptian border is close by, but Egypt won't open its border to most Palestinians to flee. And the U.S. agrees. It doesn't want mass displacement from Gaza. So Palestinians are being squeezed into smaller and smaller areas of Gaza. Daniel Estrin, NPR News. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Through December 31st, tickets at bostonballet.org. And Semester Off, a structured educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive functioning coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Spring semester starts January 22nd. Semesteroff.com. When NPR first came on the air, a set of principles guided our work. NPR will serve the individual, promote personal growth, regard differences with respect and joy rather than derision and hate. NPR will provide listeners with an experience that enriches and gives meaning to the human spirit. NPR will explore, investigate, and try to interpret issues of the day so listeners might better understand themselves, as well as governments, institutions, our world. NPR will be trustworthy, enhance intellectual development, expand knowledge, and increase the pleasure of living in a pluralistic society. NPR will be a service to listeners that makes them more responsive, informed human beings, and responsible citizens of their communities and the world. And that's still our purpose, work we do with you and for you, and we can only do it with your support. So please donate to this station today. 
And that is absolutely true. We cannot do any of this work without you, local, national, international. So we're asking you right now to help us as we count down the last 24 hours of this fun drive. It's over tomorrow. I'm Lisa Mullins here with Magna Chakrabarty, uh, asking you to please help us chip away at this remaining $166,000. And we have a special match to help us do that and to help us keep on stories like what we're hearing from uh, Gaza and from Israel. We are going to be on the story for a long time, the foreseeable future, and we need to have the dollars fortified to be able to do that to keep our reporters like Daniel Estrin safe as they head there. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. And remember, we have this match going on right now, so it's a great time to make your money go even further. 800-909-9287. And when you call that number, and contribute to WBUR, you're contributing to the kind of reporting that you just heard from Daniel Estrin in Gaza, a very hard story uh, to report. But NPR and WBUR reporters excel in what I would call is a sort of a, a factual and journalistic delicacy. Like they treat hard stories in a way that makes them real and vivid for you, but also makes you, puts you there, right? So it's, there's no unnecessary emotion. It, there's enough just in the lives of people that they're covering. And so you really only get that in places like WBUR. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. And once again, as an incentive, uh, we have this dollar-for-dollar match, and we're doing this to basically try and get you, if you haven't pledged yet, to please do it right now. It is a one-to-one match. So if you can become a monthly member, if you can give, say, $20 a month, then that would become $40 a month for us without a single penny extra coming from your bank account. If you want to make a one-time gift, if you can do $50, a one-time gift of maybe $150, some people out there can do $5,000 in a one-time gift, I think we had a few of those earlier this morning, then that will be matched as well, dollar for dollar. So please get in on that now. It's just until, I believe it's just until 5 o'clock today. So you have uh, basically uh, 12 more minutes uh, in which to get your pledge in. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. So as we get closer to the end of this uh, year-end fundraiser, the matches, the deadline for the matches get even closer as well. So just as Lisa said, you just got until 5 o'clock to make good on this dollar-for-dollar match. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call and or WBUR.org. And if you do, also there's an Eton radio that's potentially your gift, uh, our gift to you as a thanks for We'd your like it too. contribution. We'd like well, it too. Well, you're giving us the gift of your, of your contribution, right? <laughs> that's and, right. Uh, yeah, the radios are pretty useful. So even in the event of a disaster... You wouldn't actually lose contact with WBUR. This is a a radio that does a lot of things, including stays on with hand-cranked power. 1-800-909-9287. So please make your pledge of support right now. Get it doubled. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. You're pledging for everything that you hear on WBUR. And and the, the, the reporters like Daniel Esterin, who is just doing amazing work, bringing us the voices of the people in the Middle East, And uh, we know you appreciate that, so please pledge for it now, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Thank you so much. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with Payback, a new original crime thriller from the creator of Line of Duty and Bodyguard. 
starring Grantchester's Morven Christie and Ozark's Peter Mullen. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. The University of Alabama will host the latest GOP presidential debate tomorrow. Work crews spent the weekend setting up the podiums and equipment for the national broadcast. And as Pat Duggins of Alabama Public Radio reports, it's not just the candidates who are looking forward to this moment in the spotlight. Tuscaloosa is still buzzing over the Crimson Tide college football team making it to the playoffs. That's going to be on New Year's Day. But Chad Tyndall has things to worry about right now. He's chief administrative officer at the University of Alabama. We've got final exams next week. Commencement is about 12 days away. And we've got a little bit of a debate. Y'all may not have heard about it, but it's going to happen in a few days. The Tuscaloosa campus is hosting the first presidential debate ever to come to Alabama. For the state's Republican Party, the GOP debate is a chance to spruce up its image. Part of that is how Alabama stacks up nationally. You know, we're a very red state, and oftentimes in the past, a lot of our folks grumble just a little bit, but not that we're ungrateful. Well, we do a lot of work. That's Terry Lathan. She's Ron DeSantis' Alabama chairman. Lathan also led the state GOP for seven years. She says the grumbling is because national party leaders know how most Alabamians will vote, so they don't spend much time here. So to bring a debate here, to me, is a tip of the hat to a very red state. So getting a debate in a small and red state is considered a nice gesture for Republicans who feel like they're being taken for granted. But not getting attention is one issue. Then there's the problem of getting too much attention, especially when it comes to one member of Congress in particular. Obviously, one of the bigger news stories coming out of Alabama has been Tommy Tupperville. But I think Alabama has so much more to showcase. That's John Wall. He's Alabama's current GOP chairman. He's referring to Republican U.S. Senator Tommy Tuberville and his recent blockade of military promotions over a Pentagon policy related to access to abortion. Just today, Tuberville announced he would now only block nominations of four-star generals. Wall says there's more to Alabama than Tommy Tuberville. And I am certainly hopeful that through this debate, um, they will see so many different aspects to our state and what makes Alabama such a great place to live and such a strong Republican state for voters. But Terry Lathan appears to be keeping her eyes on the prize nationally. She says voters might choose Ron DeSantis over Donald Trump if the Florida governor delivers similar policies without all the baggage dogging the former president. And you combine those two that a lot of people are, are giving Ron DeSantis a look, even in the red state of Alabama. With, with Trump, it's a very Trumpy state. Um, but I've got people saying, listen, I was for Trump last time. I'm, I'm looking. I, I'm looking hard at DeSantis. Those who are tuning into the debate will have the chance to see DeSantis and the other three GOP candidates participating: Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, and Chris Christie. Trump is planning to skip this matchup, just like the previous ones. Alabama Republicans hope the candidates who do show up will craft their message for young voters on this university campus. Josh Bramlett teaches political public relations at the university. He has a few ideas. You also have the cost of higher education and student loan debt. And so talking about the economy through the lens of how it matters to young voters would be something that I would hope to see from the, the moderators and the candidates in this debate. However, there are questions as to how many young voters on the Tuscaloosa campus will be tuned in to what the GOP has to say during the debate. For NPR News, I'm Pat Duggins in Tuscaloosa, Alabama.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Canyon Ranch Lennox, the all-inclusive wellness resort in the Berkshires. Spa, fitness, gourmet cuisine, and restoration for the holidays and the new year. Wellness and relaxation, a three-hour drive from Boston. Learn more at CanyonRanch.com. That's CanyonRanch.com. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Just taking a minute out now before we go back to the news to tell you that we have just 24 hours left in the fun drive. We are hoping that if you have yet to make a phone call, you'll do it right now. The news that we have for you, including that story about tomorrow night's GOP debate, uh, all the stories that we have to come uh, on the Supreme Court, Nina Tobenberg is coming up in the next hour. All these stories are made possible with your contributions in the past. The stories that you'll hear, including the election in the year to come, happen because of your contribution right now. one 800 909 9287wbur.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with Magna Chakraborty, and there's a real special reason for you to call right now. Yeah, because we only have four and a half minutes left to get in on this terrific dollar for dollar match, right? That we've got on offer this hour. And uh, wow, time does fly. It's really less than, it's now verging on four minutes. 1 800 909 9287 is the number to call. It's the way to make your contribution go twice as far. Be twice as effective for WBUR, and then you can tell yourself that uh, by doing double the work, you're getting double back immediately in, form, in the form of news and information that you rely on from WBUR. So once again, you can either go to the website, which is WBUR.org, or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Misinformation is having a profound impact on our country We need strong voices that tell the truth and deliver the facts. WBUR amplifies those voices, and its strength is listener support. Monthly contributions to WBUR ensure that hundreds of thousands of listeners get information they need to make critical decisions every day. Not a monthly contributor yet? You can make a meaningful difference at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And you can make an especially uh, meaningful contribution right now because it's going to be doubled just for about the next two to three minutes. 1-800-909-9287. Thanks to some members of the Morrow Society. And by the way, this applies to one-time only contributions uh, or monthly contributions. So decide what WBUR is worth to you and put a dollar value on it now. Essentially, any way that you want to contribute, whether it's monthly or one time only, it will be matched dollar for dollar. But you have to make that call or go online in the next two and a half minutes to get in on the match. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call or WBUR.org. A strong independent media presence in a region helps to create informed communities and critical thinkers and an enriched population. So when you fund WBUR at times like right now, even with a modest gift, you are doing your part. You're contributing to the greater good, along with your own personal interest, because this is where you get the news. So this is a place that we assume you really want to keep strong and write it upon on whatever news, wherever it happens. So please do your part for uh, Megna's program, On Point, for Here and Now, for uh, Fresh Air, for Radio Boston, for all that you hear on WBUR, because we cannot do this without you. Of course, not without your listenership, we couldn't do it, but also without your contributions. And right now, you can get your contribution matched dollar for dollar, 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. Remember, the fund drive is over tomorrow 
wouldn't you feel good if you were part of WBUR instead of sort of skirting these fund drives? Um, because these are real and our costs are quite real. So please help us out. 1-800-909-9287. That is the number to call. And, you know, there aren't very many institutions left where you know whether that whether you contribute or not, it will be there to serve you. WBUR wants to remain one of those institutions. So ideally, there would be no free riders on this. All you listeners out there who who do rely on this station, who maybe haven't gotten to donating just yet, break that streak. Call 1-800-909-9287 right now, literally now. And if you do so, you get in on a dollar for dollar match. So now's the time. Yep. This is the last chance to get in on this match. And this applies to both those who want to make a one-time pledge. If you can do a $100 pledge, $200, $300 pledge, we'd appreciate that, whatever you can afford. If you can make it a monthly gift to WBUR, we would appreciate that as well, because your gift of, say, $50 a month becomes $100 a month to us for one entire year. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. There's more intense fighting in Gaza today. Israel's military also says its fighter jets struck targets in neighboring Lebanon. This comes as Israeli security forces are arresting Palestinians in the West Bank. NPR's Brian Mann reports. Much of the international focus is on fierce battles between Israel and Hamas being waged in Gaza and on the humanitarian crisis there for more than two million Palestinians struggling to find refuge from the fighting. But Israeli forces are also active here in the occupied West Bank, where United Nations officials report three Palestinian men killed in the last 24 hours during Israeli raids. According to the UN, more than 3,000 Palestinians in the West Bank have been wounded by Israeli forces since October 7th. Israel's military, meanwhile, confirmed its jets bombed targets across its northern border in Lebanon as part of an effort to weaken Hezbollah, the Iran-backed militia. Israel says Hezbollah fired rockets at Israel that fell without causing damage or injuries. Brian Mann, NPR News, Ramallah. President Biden commented today on the accounts of rape and other sexual violence during the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel. As NPR's Tamara Keith reports, this comes a day after the United Nations faced criticism 
for not speaking out against Israel for the high number of civilian casualties in Gaza. Speaking at a closed-door fundraiser in Boston, President Biden described, quote, Hamas terrorists inflicting as much pain and suffering on women and girls as possible during the attacks, citing rapes and acts of mutilation described by first responders and survivors. Biden added, quote, the world can't just look away at what's going on and that it must be condemned without equivocation. And Biden blamed Hamas for the end of the ceasefire, saying it refused to release young women hostages. Biden spoke the day after eyewitnesses testified at the United Nations about the violence. Tamara Keith, NPR News, Boston. U.S. climate envoy John Kerry says he wants new technologies to blunt climate change. NPR's Jeff Blumfield has more. Speaking at an energy forum on the sidelines of the COP28 climate conference in Dubai, Kerry made the case for nuclear fusion. Fusion generates power by sticking light atoms together. It doesn't release greenhouse gases or produce long-term waste, which is a big problem for existing nuclear reactors. For decades, scientists have tried to make it work without success, but Kerry said he believes progress is being made. We are edging ever closer to a fusion-powered reality. The past few years have seen a wave of investment in fusion energy startups. They've received billions in private equity to test a variety of different approaches. But it remains to be seen if any of the companies can deliver clean energy to the grid. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. Wall Street finished mixed today. The Dow fell 79 points. The Nasdaq rose 44. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Congressman Jake Auchincloss says Hamas must be destroyed. The Massachusetts Democrat also says Israel must conform to law and work to protect civilians in Gaza from harm. Auchincloss told CNN today that he believes removing Hamas from power is necessary for peace in the region. A new poll from the Harvard Kennedy School finds that young voters are less likely to hit the polls next year than they were in 2020. Fifty-seven percent of 18 to 29-year-olds plan to vote in 2020, but only 49 percent plan to vote next year. Biden still holds an 11 percentage point lead head-to-head against Donald Trump among younger voters. Cambridge City Council has unanimously passed an ordinance to create a commission to explore reparations. The American Freedmen Commission would require the majority of its members to be direct descendants of people who were enslaved in the U.S. The members will be paid a stipend to investigate how to address human rights violations in the period before slavery was outlawed. In the forecast, 35 degrees now, lots of clouds for tonight, a bit below freezing overnight tonight. Some snow showers by daybreak tomorrow, tomorrow continuing through until just about noontime. It may be a messy commute tomorrow morning, although there shouldn't be a lot of snow on the ground, just about an inch or less. Clouds lasting the day, temperatures around 35 degrees. It's 5.05. WBUR supporters include Melville Charitable Trust committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. I'm Tiziana Deering. You know, life is real. It's messy. We get all of the ups, all of the downs, the joys, the tragedies, the new information, the old stories, the laughs, the heartbreak. At WBUR, we bring all of that every day. And what we care about is being a part of your life. WBUR is better and we're all better when we're in that life together. When you decide to make that little bit of investment every month, you recognize that we are in this together and we're committed to being in it together today, tomorrow, next month, next year. 
If you are ready to be in this together with us a little bit every month, you can either call 1-800-909-9287 or you can go online at WBUR.org. To those of you who've pledged already in the fund drive, thank you so much. If you haven't, do it right now because the fundraiser is over tomorrow. You've made an investment in WBUR by listening. We hope that you will close the loop and make an investment right now by contributing to WBUR because this kind of news and information is expensive. We don't have commercials to pay for it. We do have you, and we hope you take that seriously. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins here with On Point host Meghna Chakrabarty. Hi there, Lisa. You know, even with the intense sort of world of news that we're experiencing right now with conflicts in so many places uh, on planet Earth, I want to highlight also that WBUR is a place you can come to to get stories that matter to you, that really uh, uh, reflect on your life. But these are the stories that wouldn't necessarily appear as breaking news on the front page. Now, here is a perfect example of that. Anthony Brooks, uh, a senior and very creative reporter here at WBUR, he has this terrific series called The Third Act. So let's listen to a bit. The all-girl band Ace of Cups was born in San Francisco in the 1960s and then disappeared without ever recording a record. Fifty years later, they came back and finally released their debut album. What I say, what I it's a choice that changes everything. Gonna reap what I sow. The story of the Ace of Cups is part of WBUR's third act series about older people who've reimagined their lives. Band member Mary Gannon says it's never too late to fulfill a dream. I think there is new possibilities there to really make that last third of your life really as good as it can be. It's something to look forward to now. I'm Anthony Brooks. We're living longer than we used to, and lots of people are designing their third acts in interesting and inspiring ways. Their stories are about human resilience, and they offer wisdom about the road ahead, which can benefit all of us. Gonna reap what I sow. You know, that series, the third act that Anthony did was his idea because he'd been talking to people and got these this uh, great amalgam of stories and proposed it, and then it's on the air. I mean, it doesn't happen that quickly. It was an awful lot of work <laughs> that went into it. But when you think about, you know, we have the latitude to be able to find good stories, propose them, and then bring them out to you on the air, and he got such great response to that. He may have some, uh, some sequels in the works. And this is the kind of thing that we think you appreciate about WBUR is that we do have have creative reporters who think critically as well and bring you stories. It may be feature stories. It may be hard stories. Um, it may be hard to hear stories. In fact, we can only do that with your dollars and we're not beholden to commercial interests. There's nobody saying, no, you can't do that because, you know, it doesn't mention a certain product or a certain movie that we're happen to be showing on this network tonight or whatever it happens to be. We don't have that. Our only editorial constraints are the constraints that we have that are part of our mission to bring you aggressive, accountable, responsible news that is independent, but it's independent because of your dollars at times like right now, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And what I loved about Anthony's series is that it reminds us 
that there are aspects of life to be celebrated. Yeah. You know, even though we're just all sort of uh, inundated with hard stories right now, there's still areas of life which we should explore because they give us joy and they inspire us. And that's what Anthony's third act series is all about. So if you want to support that kind of journalism as well, and it is journalism because we're looking at every aspect of the human experience, call 1-800-909-9287, or you can do it at WBUR.org. And please do it now. The fundraiser is over tomorrow. In about 24 hours, it's going to be uh, finished. And so please make your phone call right now to include yourself in to allow us to do more of that kind of journalism and the kind of journalism you're about to hear with stories um, from Congress stories from the Supreme Court. Thank you so much. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Good News Garage, accepting tax-deductible car donations and providing them to neighbors in need since 1996. Goodnewsgarage.org. And Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. House Speaker Mike Johnson is the keynote speaker at an event for a National Association of Lawmakers tonight. The group is working to take conservative Christian control at every level of government. Now, their views go further than abolishing abortion nationwide or walking back same-sex marital rights. At a conference that this group held earlier this year, one speaker defended the idea of the death penalty for gay people. Johnson's ties to far-right Christian movements are unprecedented for a lawmaker in such a high position of authority. And some warn that those movements pose a great danger to American democracy. NPR's domestic extremism correspondent Odette Youssef reports. Back in February, Mike Johnson organized a prayer event in D.C. for members of Congress. This was not the 70-year-old bipartisan national prayer breakfast. This was a new gathering the National Gathering for Prayer and Repentance. And to Matthew Taylor, the whole thing felt eerily familiar. They had uh, a number of elements that were very overt references to the spirituality of January 6th. Including the sound of a shofar, a ram's horn. It comes from the Jewish tradition. Taylor is a religious scholar at the Institute for Islamic, Christian, and Jewish Studies in Baltimore. They had pauses in the, in the ceremony where they, they, they had people on stage blowing shofars. And then they had prayers of repentance, prayers of spiritual warfare over the, the country. The tone, message, and involvement of certain evangelical leaders put into public view Johnson's connections with figures that Taylor considers to be Christian extremists. Johnson is a Southern Baptist, but it's his ties with a particular network of non-denominational, charismatic Christians that's drawing scrutiny. The network is known as the New Apostolic Reformation, or NAR. The movement is small but growing quickly, and so is its political influence. Its followers believe there is a theological imperative to bring America under, quote, biblical governance. They have a plan. It's known as the Seven Mountains Mandate, or Dominion Theology. Dominionism is the theocratic idea that Christians are called by God to exercise dominion over every aspect of society by taking control of political and cultural institutions. Fred Clarkson is with Political Research Associates, a nonprofit that tracks the far right. 
He's followed the Christian right for many years. Clarkson says it's notable that among Johnson's close affiliates is a former pastor named James Garlow. Identify the, sphere, the seven spheres of influence. Garlow is a hardline anti-abortion and anti-gay marriage activist. He's also a leader in the NAR. Garlow promotes a theocratic vision for America, one where Christians control every major aspect of society. The seven spheres of influence are the home, the church, civil government, business, which includes technology, arts and entertainment, which includes professional sports, education, and the last one is media. But as leaders in this movement pursue biblical governance in the U.S., they understand it's not a popular idea. Only 6% of Americans espouse the idea of Christian control over society. That's according to a survey by the Public Religion Research Institute. And the number of self-identified and church-attending Christians has been declining in the U.S. I've seen a tremendous uptick in the rhetoric of violence among prominent Christian right leaders. Clarkson says some in the movement talk about more than just spiritual warfare. Dominionist sorts from the New Apostolic Reformation in particular, uh, where they're predicting civil war. And they're clear about the needing to take out uh, God's enemies in the end times. But the movement has also seen in recent years that there is another path to power. And that path was the presidency. Andrew Whitehead of Indiana University, Purdue University, says Donald Trump was actually a perfect test of the power of Christian nationalism. Because he wasn't personally invested in looking like he was a committed Christian. Instead, Trump positioned himself as a renegade populist, not someone pursuing a theological agenda. But he was committed to using the rhetoric of Christian nationalism and promising access to political power for those groups. NAR leaders were early to endorse Trump when he ran in 2016. After he won, he gave them a seat at the table. Garlow, for example, was on his National Faith Advisory Board. This alliance both legitimized a movement that had long sat at the fringe of the evangelical right it also gave them a front seat to something they'd long dreamt of, the reversal of Roe v. Wade. Trump showed that with just the right partner in the right office, key parts of the NAR's theocratic vision could be attained. And so NAR leaders were at the center of mobilizing the Christian right to keep Trump in office up to and on January 6th. Matthew Taylor says there's great hope now in the NAR that Mike Johnson, as House Speaker, will be another such partner to the movement. What worries me about Mike Johnson is that he's sending signals to these people with these anti-democratic agendas that he is in their camp. Taylor points to the role Johnson played in a lawsuit challenging the results of the 2020 election. And to a flag that Johnson keeps outside his congressional office. It's called the Appeal to Heaven flag, and it's a popular symbol among Christian nationalists who believe the election was stolen. NPR asked Johnson's office about the flag. A spokesperson said he appreciates its history, pointing to its use during the Revolutionary War, but not to the more recent adoption by the Christian far right. Johnson has said he considers gay marriage to be settled law and that he doesn't intend to pursue a national ban on abortion. But for Taylor, 
the real test of Johnson's commitment to pluralistic democracy will come in a time of crisis. Like the period between the 2020 election and January 6th, what is a figure like Mike Johnson going to do? It's not just about the legislative agenda. It's about the position of influence. If Mike Johnson is still speaker in November of 2024, he may well face that kind of a test. Odette Youssef, NPR News. At the Supreme Court today, the justices approached a major tax case with a great deal of trepidation. The justices' caution is likely justified because their eventual decision could severely limit congressional options in enacting tax policy. And that outcome could cost the federal government trillions of dollars in corporate taxes. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports. Today's case is widely seen as a preventive strike against Senator Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax, not that her proposal has any real chance of being enacted. The tax under the microscope today, though, was enacted in 2017 in part to fund President Trump's massive corporate tax cut. Called the Mandatory Repatriation Tax, or MRT, it imposed a one-time tax on offshore investment income. For Charles and Kathleen Moore, that meant they owed a one-time tax of $15,000 on an investment in India that grew in value from $40,000 to more than a half million dollars. The Moors paid the tax and then challenged it in court, contending that it violates the 16th Amendment to the Constitution, which authorizes Congress to impose taxes on income. Today, their lawyer, Andrew Grossman, told the court that the federal government can only tax income that is actually paid to the taxpayer, what he called realized income, as opposed to what he called the Moore's unrealized income. Chief Justice Roberts noted that the corporation certainly has realized income, and Justice Sotomayor asked about the many other ways that investments are taxed even though there's no payout to individuals. These include everything from real estate partnerships to law firms. Why do we permit taxing of individual partners when a partner doesn't have personal ownership, doesn't get the value of the partnership, yet we've permitted that tax. Thank you, Justice Sotomayor. A partnership is a fundamentally different form of uh, organization than a corporation. Justice Kagan pointed to the country's long history of taxing American shareholders on their gains from foreign corporations. Congress, the U.S. government, they wanted to make sure that Americans didn't kind of stash their money in the foreign corporations, watch their money grow, and never pay taxes. And Justice Kavanaugh chimed in with this observation. We've long held that Congress may attribute the income of the company to the shareholders or the partnership to the partners. Defending the tax, Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogger faced a grilling from both Justices Alito and Gorsuch. Here, for example, is Gorsuch. I'm just asking what the limits of your argument are, and it, and it seems to me there are none. Well, I certainly think that Congress has broad taxing power. And what the court has said, Congress has plenary power. It can tax people just for existing. 
Still, by the end of the argument, Prelager seemed at least to have assuaged some of Gorsuch's fears. The reason why I would strongly caution the court away from adopting a realization requirement is not only that we think that it is inaccurate, uh, profoundly ahistorical, inconsistent with the text of the 16th Amendment, but it would also wreak havoc on the proper operation of the tax code. Indeed, former Republican House Speaker Paul Ryan, who shepherded the 2017 tax bill through the House, made a similar point in September, warning that if the MRT is invalidated, it could unravel a third of the tax code. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. WBUR supporters include Olin College of Engineering, ranked number two for best classroom experience and top internship placements by the Princeton Review, Olin.edu, and Jewish Arts Collaborative with Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights, Music, Arts, Jelly Donuts, and more. Thursday, Museum of Fine Arts Boston, jartsboston.org. Coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR, the presidents of Harvard and MIT testify before a congressional committee today about anti-Semitism on their campuses and how they're trying to protect students and staff. It was a lackluster day on Wall Street. The Dow lost about two-tenths of a percent. S&P fell less than one-tenth of a percent, and the Nasdaq gained ground up three-tenths of a percent. Officials with retail health care company CVS say they are revamping the way drugs are priced for pharmacy customers. Leaders say the new effort will simplify costs and make it clearer to customers how their medicines are priced. The Rhode Island-based company will roll out its new model known as CVS Cost Advantage in the year 2025. Forecast clouds overnight tonight, pretty cold, down around 30 degrees. Could have some snow showers early tomorrow, likely less than an inch on the ground around drive time tomorrow morning. Overcast during the day, temperatures in the mid-30s tops. 34 degrees now in Boston at 524. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. It's Layla Faldid from NPR's Morning Edition. The demonization of fact-based journalism is one of democracy's biggest threats. This aversion to truth has taken hold as the number of local newsrooms has dwindled, leaving reams of disinformation to fill the void. In public radio, we have a responsibility to counteract disinformation. This station is an oasis amid all the noise and fiction. Having a reporter at the school board meeting at City Hall, that is our resistance to the undermining of a free press. We resist by being there, by providing platforms for people to see themselves reflected and to see difference. We resist by building bridges and by holding people to account. We do it thanks to you. You give us the tools we need to fight attacks on truth by donating to this station. Here's how. It's pretty easy. Just call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. 
We hope that you will decide what WBUR is worth to you, what the stories that you've been hearing and will hear are worth to you, because they only come with your contribution. We don't have commercial dollars. We do have you making voluntary contributions. We hope you'll do that right now. I'm Lisa Mullins of Meghna Shaka Party. We only have one more day left in this fund drive. And Meghna, I guess we're down to $162,000 left to raise in the next day. Yeah, so we've made a great deal of progress. And thank you to every single person who's helped us along the way in this year in fundraiser. You know, but $162,000 isn't anything to uh, to sort of just ignore or, or bat away. It's a significant amount. So we want to keep our momentum going through tonight and then, of course, tomorrow so we can wrap up this fundraiser successfully. And what success means for WBUR is the same thing that success means for you and when it comes to talking about news. It means getting more and complete and uh, and unique analysis that's filled with uh, journalistic standards at the highest level and integrity as well. That's what we try to deliver to you every day. So be a part of that mission. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. This is Laura Dern. If there is a world on the other side of a wall somewhere where artists run free and journalists share a point of view educate us into alternative opinion and voice, and it's used beautifully, and there's opera and Sesame Street and National Public Radio, I want to be on that side of the wall. So thank you, National Public Radio. I pray that you're supported forever. We need you. It's how I get my news. It's how I get to know about human behavior. It's how I, thanks to people like Terry Gross, learn about film and invention And I care deeply about it, and I never, ever want anyone to feel anxiety about losing voice in our uh, beautiful democracy. WBUR brings people in the news, people who are affected by what's happening around us, that voice. And we know that you appreciate that. You're not listening to talking heads. You're not listening to people who are just screaming at each other, using opinion to masquerade as news. When you listen to WBUR, it is a very transparent interaction. You put in the money and get out what you put in. Basically, you get the news and information that you count on at a time when journalism, unfortunately, is in free fall. We are strong. We can only stay strong with your contribution. 1-800-909-9287. That's the number to call or WBUR.org if you want to be part of uh, the meaningful attempts and ongoing work that people in the community are putting forward to keep WBUR strong and a unique source of the best news and information you can get on the radio. So once once again, the number is 1-800-909-9287. And I really recommend that you call that number now because tomorrow at 7 p.m. is when this whole fundraiser wraps up. So just a little bit over 24 hours and we still have $162,000 to raise in that time. Right, Lisa? Absolutely. And uh, we haven't mentioned the, uh, we probably don't have too much time to mention it right now, but the Eton Radio, the all-purpose weather radio and portable phone charger. It does amazing things. And it's red. It looks really cool. And um, this can be yours with a pledge 
privilege of, I'm Jay Clayton is just about to tell me from the other room, $12 a month. And so if you can make a $12 a month commitment to WBUR, you get the Eton Radio and you get the, um, the, the knowledge that you are helping WBUR be sustained on a monthly basis, no matter what happens to the economy, what happens to our economy, because we will be strong throughout. That's what happens when you pledge monthly. And if at any time you want to change the amount you give monthly, then you can do that. Here's the number, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders and changemakers to advance equity and power a better Boston. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. On Capitol Hill, the Senate has approved a backlog of more than 400 military promotions in one block. This after Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville ended his blockade, following heavy criticism from many of his GOP colleagues in the Senate. Tuberville was holding up the votes in protest of a Pentagon policy, ensuring abortion access for service members. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says he hopes other GOP senators take note. I hope they learn the lesson of Senator Tuberville, and that is he held out for many, many months, hurt our national security, caused discombobulation to so many military families who have been so dedicated to our country and didn't get anything that he wanted. Fellow Republicans criticized Tuberville's blockade, saying it damaged military readiness. An Israeli airstrike today killed a Lebanese soldier in the first known Lebanese army death since Israel and the Iran-backed militia Hezbollah began cross-border attacks back in October. The Israeli military has not commented. We get more from NPR's Jane Raft from Beirut. Lebanon's armed forces said a soldier was killed and three others were wounded when Israel struck what it called an armed forces center near the border town of Nabi Oueda. The attack was unusual because Lebanon's army has stayed out of the fighting. Prime Minister Najib Makati has said that Lebanon, which is suffering a financial and political crisis, would not attack Israel. He called for a peace plan. Hezbollah, which is more powerful than the Lebanese army, has been trading cross-border attacks with Israel since the start of the Gaza war. Jane Araf, NPR News, Beirut. Stocks finished mostly mixed on Wall Street after reports showed the job market is cooling in the face of higher interest rates, but still remains healthy. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Police in the Bahamas have released the name of a Massachusetts woman who was killed in a shark attack yesterday. She's been identified as 44-year-old Lauren Erickson Van Wart. No hometown was given. Van Wart was attacked while she was paddleboarding off the coast of Nassau. Numerous reports indicate that the woman had been recently married. Boston's largest police union has approved a new contract with the city. The deal increases wages for police officers, streamlines the police detail process, and makes it harder for officers involved in certain crimes to stay on the force. Here's WBUR's Simone Rios. The contract makes it harder for officers accused of crimes including rape or hate crimes to overturn discipline or firing through the police arbitration process. Larry Calderoni of the Boston Police Patrolmen's Association praised the change. 
He cited his predecessor, Patrick Rose, a convicted child molester who stayed on the BPD for decades after being charged with abusing a boy. The one thing that a police officer dislikes probably the most is a dishonest police officer. And what this discipline language does is it clarifies that we can never have an incident like Pat Rose in the future. The police union's agreement with the city still has to be approved by the city council. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. Two new paintings of artists of color are now hanging in the governor's office. Black Tie by Robert Chee Freeman and At the Tremont Street Car Barns by Ellen Kreit are on loan from the Museum of Fine Arts, Boston. Governor Maura Healy says she wants her office artwork to represent the diversity of the state. 35 degrees now in Boston. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include the Provider Group, an insurance brokerage and benefits firm serving high net worth individuals and businesses, working with carriers like Safety Insurance, ProviderIG.com, and Sincere Foundation, which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces, and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at Sincere.com. Temperatures should fall to about 30 overnight tonight. A light layer of snow on the ground when we wake up tomorrow. Only about an inch at most around Boston, but it could make for a messy a.m. commute. The afternoon should be mainly dry tomorrow. Lots of clouds. Cold, too. Just about 35 for a high. Thursday, bright skies. Some sunshine. Still chilly. Staying in the mid-30s. This is WBUR. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org solutions. And from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world and every purchase supports NPR's high quality journalism. Available to adults 21 or older, nprwineclub.org. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Show up, study hard, be honest. These time-honored principles of school life still hold sway, but one Massachusetts middle school has added a directive associated with modern wellness. Many students try to put the school's credo into action, and administrators say it helps both teaching and learning. Judith Kogan has our story. Every morning and afternoon at Brown Middle School in Newton, Massachusetts, eighth graders commandeer the school's PA system. Math team and flag football will meet today. Girls soccer will be playing their final game of the season tomorrow. Lots of schools have mottos and credos, and they let students voice them. Here at Brown Middle, the credo is deeply embraced. Be here. Be safe and kind. Set goals. Be honest. Let go and move on. Once upon a time, perseverance and grit were the coins of the realm in school. But at this school, let go and move on has been a salve for middle school wounds that can interfere with learning. Eighth graders Bessie Madden and Ethan Wright named some of them. If you made a mistake or you like got in a fight with someone, have an argument with a friend, maybe missed a homework assignment, someone else insulted you or something. Middle school is often a challenging time. Social media, heightened academic pressure, and emerging adolescents collide. Brown Middle School principal Kim Lysett says bumps are inevitable. The students are leaving childhood, 
and peering at adulthood. Middle school is a mistake factory, like, let's face it. She says the bigger problem is that students sometimes can't put mistakes in perspective. Kids will hold on to something that went wrong in their day or week or year, and instead of forgiving or trying to give themselves or others a second chance, they hang on to that, which impacts their ability to move forward. Beyond inclusion in the twice-daily announcements, let go and move on is painted on the gym wall plastered on hallway posters and woven into classroom discussions. Especially when kids have maybe done something wrong. We talk about how tomorrow's a new day, we learn from it, and then we let go and we move on. Nobody is defined by one, one action that they did. Where there's friction between students, they're often brought together to hear each other out. Sometimes that involves an apology or at least ownership of their role in the situation. It helps them to pass each other in the hall later and not have that visceral reaction. Brown Middle School students like Ran and Iyer have found the advice helpful in settling differences. Holding a grudge is like holding hot coals and expecting the other person to be burned. It's pretty useless unless you just resolve the conflict. 13-year-old Nyer says that a lot of bumps revolve around friendships, which in middle school can be fluid and confusing. As everyone pieces together their personalities, friend groups don't always stay together. You stay friends, but you shift apart. You're becoming an individual and an adult, so you need to be able to be independent and make your personality without your friends being there all the time. But some of the frustration is self-directed, especially when grades or academic performance falter. It doesn't help that each student's own academic record is a computer click away. Eighth grader Ruby Antonella says she thinks about the school's credo most every day. As someone who takes setbacks very seriously. I think that let go and move on is a great way to say we're here to learn and learning is a process that's not just success after success. Antonellis wonders whether with wars raging in the Middle East and Europe, global leaders might consider Brown Middle School's tenet. World leaders should let go and move on because it is important to focus on modern day and as much as our past and our history is relevant, we are only focusing on trying to make the current world a better place. From this eighth grader's lips to the ears of diplomats the world over. For NPR News, I'm Judith Kogan in Newton, Massachusetts. That's it, so have a great day. The presidents of three elite universities were on Capitol Hill today to testify about anti-Semitism on campus. The hearing comes after nearly two months of protests. There's also been backlash and even violence on U.S. campuses stemming from the October 7th attack by Hamas and Israel's military response in Gaza. NPR's Alyssa Adwerney reports. The three campuses on the Hill today were Harvard, the University of Pennsylvania, and MIT. And their presidents all had similar messages for lawmakers. First, students and staff feel unsafe amid the rise of anti-Semitism. These events have understandably left many in our community upset and afraid. University of Pennsylvania President Liz McGill pointed to recent protests in her city. But she said campuses need both safety and free speech in order for democracy to thrive. Something the president of Harvard, Claudine Gay, admitted is a major challenge. I have sought to confront hate while preserving free expression. This is difficult work, and I know that I have not always gotten it right. 
That tension was on full display when Republican Representative Elise Stefanik of New York pushed the Harvard president on pro-Palestinian protesters' use of the word intifada. Do you believe that type of hateful speech is contrary to Harvard's code of conduct, or is it allowed at Harvard? It is at odds with the values of Harvard. Can you but not say here that it is also... against the code of conduct at Harvard? We embrace a commitment to free expression, even of views that are objectionable, offensive, hateful. I would be shocked if you talk to any college or university president who isn't at least thinking about this part of the time. John Fansmith is with the American Council on Education, which represents hundreds of college presidents who are in a tough position, he says. Some of this is a certain necessary ugliness that comes from college campuses being incubators of debate, being areas where free speech and ideas being challenged are encouraged. But the federal government is clear. The Biden administration has told colleges they risk losing federal funding if they don't take aggressive steps to curb anti-Semitism and Islamophobia on campus. To do that, the three testifying today said they are increasing police presence on campus, making student concerns easier to report, and expanding access to mental health services for students and staff, among others. Alyssa Nadworny, NPR News. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New England Innovation Academy, preparing students through innovation, entrepreneurship, and human-centered design. Tour Day, December 9th, neiacademy.org. Have you ever wondered how you would feel if tomorrow you woke up and public radio was just gone? Oh, man. That would be tough. I think it would be devastating. Well, I would grieve because there would be no replacement for it. We asked listeners around the country that very question. I've been listening to NPR for a long time. So NPR has been a giant part of my life. And I would be devastated if it wasn't there anymore. It would be a very depressing ride to work. I don't know if there's enough cups of coffee in the world that would be able to get me over that. There, there really is nothing else like it. We donate, but there's a lot of people out there that listen that probably don't donate. And I think uh, that's a really great thing to put into perspective is how would you feel? There's an easy way to feel good about public radio and the financial health of your station. Just support it. Really, do it right now. Call or go online. Your tax-deductible contribution will help ensure public radio isn't going anywhere. It'll be here when you turn on your radio tomorrow. And thanks. It'll be here and it'll be strong thanks to your dollars. If you have made a pledge, thank you so much. If you haven't, as uh, Rachel said there, just support it. Uh, make it. Make a call, make a commitment to supporting WBUR. It can be a modest amount. We so appreciate whatever you can afford, but please do it right now because this fund drive is over tomorrow. We still have more than $161,000 left to raise and we have a match on the table, a dollar for dollar match until seven o'clock tonight or uh, if we raise $15,000, whichever comes first. So you've heard this before. If you haven't taken advantage of it, then please do it right now as we count our way down to the end of the fund drive. Members of the Morrow Society will match your monthly gift or your one-time gift dollar for dollar. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins. Happy to be joined by Magna Chakrabarty. Hi there, Lisa. And if you're able to 
contribute $12 a month. That's a monthly contribution um, that would automatically take place if you decide to become a sustainer. Then in return, we will offer you, we'll give you this terrific product. It's an Eton all-purpose emergency radio and portable phone charger. Now, we're living in a time where power outages are unfortunately not uncommon. Uh, New England is always on the alert for a fast-moving hurricane that might decide to move up the eastern seaboard. There are several reasons why you can't be too prepared. And having this Eton radio, it'll help charge devices if you need. Um, It's got a siren on it and, of course, keep you connected to uh, various communications channels to understand what's happening. An important part of your readiness kit, I'd say, for your home It'll come to you for just $12 a month in contributions to WBUR. So 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call to get in on that, or WBUR.org. And also, if you choose to make a one-time gift, $144 will get you that Eton radio. It's just one of the really nice incentives that WBUR has. The biggest incentive of all is what you tune in for, what you listen for, including that really beautiful story by Judith Kogan on uh, the middle school credo in a middle school in Newton. Uh, it's let's go and move on. And you heard such articulate students talking about what that means to them, and it's affecting teachers as well. So you don't always get just the hard news, the breaking news coming out of combat zones. You also get news that bring other aspects of life to you, including in some cases joy to you, which is very much a part of our lives as well. And we want to amplify that as well as all the other voices in the news. And that's what you get when you listen to WBUR. We have a match on the table right now, dollar for dollar match until seven o'clock or uh, until we raise $15,000, whichever comes first. So please make your pledge right now. Have it be worth double for us. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And it's definitely not just always hard news here at WBUR. I mean, hard news is news of the moment. It's factual. It's putting you there when events are happening. Very, very important. But one of the things that I also think WBUR excels at, and that is what I'd call meaningful news or analysis about how we're living right now and why we're living that way, or even listening to experts for guidance on how to navigate complex times. Like, for example, tomorrow on uh, on Point, we're going to have a conversation of how to talk talk with kids about climate change. Now, it's interesting because kids are leading that conversation in certain ways. So maybe it's parents who aren't as well equipped as they'd like to be. That's not necessarily hard news, although climate change is always in the news. But it's it's meaningful news because it's affecting every part of your life. And if you have young people in your life, it's having an impact on that relationship. So that's the kind of thoughtful conversation and exploration you also get here at WBUR. And it is absolutely impossible for us to do that without your contributions, without you being part of the team through your donations. So 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call or WBUR.org. If you could possibly do a one-time gift of, say, $2,000, I think somebody had twice that this morning, if you can make a gift of $2,000, it becomes 4000 for us right now, just until 7 o'clock tonight. If you can do a monthly gift of $100, it becomes a monthly gift of 200 for us. If you can do a $25 a month gift, it becomes $50, only until 7 o'clock tonight. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. We're asking you to pledge for what you listen to, for what you get uh, in our um, newsletters, what you get in our podcast. 
many of you are big fans of Cognoscenti. Our opinion and and um, uh, opinion and uh, information, but what do I, I can't remember the tagline <laughs> on that. It is it is so fascinating, and there are some fantastic writers who are on there. We hope that you listen, and we hope that you read it, and we hope you will support it because that's the only the way we can bring it to you. One eight hundred nine zero nine nine two eight seven wbur dot org. Our ideas and opinion page Cognoscenti. That's it. One eight hundred nine zero nine nine two eight seven WBUR.org. I'm with Meghna Chakrabarty, who does On Point. There's a great show that's going to be repeated tonight starting at 7 o'clock on uh, Christian evangelicalism and conservative politics. You'll want to listen to that. Pledge for that. Pledge for all things considered. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the US, Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world. Where innovation meets the law, this is NPR. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. This next story is about a rare sort of friendship between two men who lived on either side of the barrier that separates Gaza from Israel. They never met in person, but they bonded over their hopes for peace until one of them was killed in the war. And Pierre Spotmatanis has their story. These are the words Ariel Bernstein wrote in a letter to remember his friend. These days when someone dies, you first have to declare which side of the wall they belong to before being granted permission to be sad. But on Monday, an exceptionally rare man who caused no harm to anyone was killed. Khalil Abu Yahya was a writer, activist and English teacher in Gaza. Ariel Bernstein, a former soldier for the Israel Defense Forces, now an anti-occupation activist. He and Abu Yahya met at an event where Bernstein was speaking last year. In 2014, I was in a combat unit and I spent several weeks in the ground invasion of Gaza. So I was speaking about my experiences and right after me, they brought up a man on Zoom to speak to the group. And this was the first time I met Khalil. It was the first time he had ever heard someone from inside Gaza talking about life under the Israeli blockade and Hamas rule. And he was surprised. And he spoke about his dreams and hopes and how he believes in the basic idea that everybody deserves freedom and equality and how he doesn't have hatred in his heart towards Israelis, and he would like for us to be able to find a solution and where he could come and visit people in Israel. And he had this charisma to him that was really appealing. After the event, the two men stayed in touch. They organized other events together that were held in Israel, where Abu Yahya joined by Zoom and spoke to a small but captivated audience of Israelis. He had several other friends in Israel, too. Peace activists, climate researchers who were interested in Gaza, Abu Yahya would update them on fuel and water developments. His kindness and optimism was contagious, and he cared deeply about his friends, often sending voice notes like this one. You know that feeling that I cannot come and see, and see you, my friends and comrades, and you too cannot come and visit me in Gaza. Oh, I don't want anyone to undergo this feeling. 
no, that's life. Hugs, love, and the music, and appreciation, and thanks, and everything from Gaza to you. Abu Yahya only left Gaza once in his life to get life-saving treatment at a hospital in East Jerusalem. Bernstein says his friend got accepted at a university in England, but couldn't get permission from Israel to go. He really seemed to like not be constricted by the situation he was in. And mentally, he was so much freer and had a larger vision of the world than most people. He didn't channel his pain into hate, but he managed to see a bigger picture. On October 7, Hamas militants broke out of Gaza and attacked communities in southern Israel, killing 1,200 people and taking dozens hostage. Israel retaliated with an ongoing bombardment of Gaza, killing at least 15,000 Palestinians. When the war broke out, Bernstein and Abu Yahya were constantly texting each other. It kind of changes everything. When you actually know someone personally, it makes it much more difficult when you hear about the bombings and all. And he started moving south to where the army said it would be, would be safe. Then Bernstein got the dreaded news. The building Abu Yahya was sheltering in was hit by an airstrike. Bernstein not only lost his friend, but also a sense of hope. Here, they try to convince you that everyone in Gaza are just monsters that want to kill you because you're Jewish. And here I know someone who lives there. He wasn't looking for trouble. He wasn't hurting anyone. And when he died, something kind of broke inside because it, it made it more difficult to hold on to this belief that we can make things better. Still, he feels an obligation to continue spreading his friend's message of hope and peace, even as the war continues. Khalil Abu Yahya was 28 years old. He was killed along with his wife, Tasneem, and his daughters, Ilaf and Rital. Fatma Tanis, NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals. With over 300 bulk items, including culinary spices, medicinal herbs, and household staples, cambridgenaturals.com. When NPR first came on the air, a set of principles guided our work. NPR will serve the individual, promote personal growth, regard differences with respect and joy rather than derision and hate. NPR will provide listeners with an experience that enriches and gives meaning to the human spirit. NPR will explore, investigate, and try to interpret issues of the day so listeners might better understand themselves, as well as governments, institutions, our world. NPR will be trustworthy, enhance intellectual development, expand knowledge, and increase the pleasure of living in a pluralistic society. NPR will be a service to listeners that makes them more responsive, informed human beings, and responsible citizens of their communities and the world. And that's still our purpose. Work we do with you and for you. And we can only do it with your support. So please donate to this station today. You know, when we ask you for your donations, we point to certain stories that you might hear. And that story that we just heard from the Israeli man remembering his Gaza friend who died when the place where he was staying in Gaza was bombed. 
It's just a, a story hearing their voices that um, reminds you of the power of radio and the power of bearing witness to what's happening in this case in Gaza um, from the eyes of an Israeli man who befriended this man that they, they would never even have uh, the ability to have a cup of coffee together. But he admired his Palestinian friend because he said he did not channel his pain into hatred. This is what you get on WBUR, and we so appreciate hearing stories like this and giving you stories like this reporting them, producing them. And we know that you appreciate them because you listen. The fact is that every one of these stories comes at a cost. So we are taking the time right now just to ask you to help defray the costs and have ownership in the radio station that you've chosen to listen to. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. We only have one more day of fundraising to go. And we right now have a special incentive. It's a match on the table right now. Meghna Chakrabarty is going to explain it to you. That's right. And this match ends at 7 o'clock tonight. It's uh, given by a generous group of listeners who want to do all they can to encourage you to call 1-800-909-9287. So since it's a dollar for dollar match, that's what it is, right? Dollar for dollar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, if you give five dollars, becomes $10. If you give $100, it becomes $200. Or how about this? Just for fun, if you can give $45 and 45 cents, you'll be giving $90 and 0.9, 90 cents She's so to good. WBUR. Just try to find new ways to make it like something that you want to do. Call one 800 909-9287. And some people are in a position to be able to give, say, $1,000 as a one-time gift, or some people $1,000 a month. That would be matched as well. Um, this morning, I think we got uh, at least a couple of $5,000 pledges. If that's on the books for you, if that's something you can afford, then we would certainly appreciate that. That, too, will be matched dollar for dollar by the generous members of the Morrow Society. If you can pledge $20, if you can pledge $20 a month, those contributions as well will be matched. All we're asking for is whatever you can afford that shows your appreciation for WBR and the understanding that we're independent radio and we want to stay independent because the journalism is better that way. We reap the benefit of that. You reap the benefit of that as well. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Once again, a dollar-for-dollar match is on the table right now, only until 7 o'clock tonight, so you have one hour and one minute to go. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Thank you for supporting WBUR. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Heifer International, where people can donate animal gifts like goats, chickens, or sheep to struggling families to help them create sustainable futures. Learn more at heifer.org NPR. From Indiana University, committed to moving the world forward and working to tackle some of society's biggest challenges. Nine campuses, one purpose, creating tomorrow today. More at iu.edu. From Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. 
WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. Prosecutors in the federal election interference case against former President Donald Trump want the jury to hear about his history of baseless fraud claims. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports. Special counsel prosecutors say Trump made phony claims about election machine tampering as far back as 2012, when Mitt Romney lost to Barack Obama. They note that Trump has repeatedly refused to pledge a peaceful transfer of power and say all that is evidence of his motive and intent when he allegedly conspired to obstruct the vote certification on January 6, 2021. The Justice Department says Trump continues to embrace some of the most violent members of the mob that stormed the U.S. Capitol, calling them hostages and pledging to pardon many of them. Judge Tanya Chutkin will decide whether the jury at next year's trial will hear any of that information. Carrie Johnson, NPR News. FBI Director Christopher Wray is urging lawmakers to renew a controversial surveillance law that is set to expire at the end of the year. Ray says it's critical to keeping America safe. NPR's Ryan Lucas reports. The authority is known as Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. It allows the U.S. government to collect the electronic communications of foreigners overseas for intelligence purposes, even when they're talking to Americans. Testifying in the Senate, Ray told lawmakers that Section 702 is a critical tool to counter terrorist threats, cyber attacks, nation-state adversaries, and even the drug cartels. It was last reauthorized in 2018, and failing to renew it now, he says, would be devastating to U.S. national security. Many lawmakers support reauthorizing the law, but they want to see significant changes to boost privacy protections. Just how sweeping those changes will be is a matter of fierce debate in Congress, with less than a month left before the law expires. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. With a single vote, the Senate has approved more than 400 military promotions. They had been held up by Republican Tommy Tuberville over abortion. He largely dropped his effort today. The Labor Department says job openings took a steep dive at the end of October. NPR's Andrea Shu has more on the story. Job openings fell in October to 8.7 million. That's the lowest they've been since the spring of 2021 and a bigger drop than analysts had expected. Meanwhile, layoffs remain low, indicating employers are hanging on to their workers. There was also little change in the quits rate, which is back to pre-pandemic levels. It's good news for the Fed, which has been raising interest rates in hopes of achieving a soft landing, cooling off the labor market without sending the country into a recession. Supply and demand of labor is now more balanced than it's been in recent years. Andrea Shu, NPR News. This is NPR News from Washington. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Dozens of people are protesting outside the Schubert Theater in Boston at this hour. That's where President Joe Biden is set to appear this evening for a fundraising event with singer James Taylor. Protesters outside are holding Palestinian flags and signs demanding an end to U.S. aid to Israel. Members of Boston's largest police union have ratified a new contract with the city. The tentative five-year agreement from the Boston Police Patrolmen's Association now heads to the city council for a vote. The new deal increases wages, streamlines the process for police detail, and makes it easier to remove officers from the force for poor conduct. NCAA president and former Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker wants to create a new athletics division where college athletes could be paid. 
Under the plan unveiled today, the new division would be made up of colleges with the most athletic resources. They could enter into name, image, and likeness partnerships with athletes who would be compensated through a trust fund. 34 degrees now in the Boston area. Cloudy skies should be with us for a while. Cold temperatures, too, down to about 30 overnight tonight. We could have snow showers early tomorrow, likely less than an inch on the ground, though, about drive time tomorrow morning. Overcast during the day, temperatures in the mid-30s. Thursday, the sunshine pushes out the clouds again in the mid-30s, could turn milder toward the end of the week. This is WBUR. It's 6.06. WBUR supporters include Jarl and Pamela Moon, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. At NPR and this station, we're not beholden to anybody but you. Public media is central to our democracy, so please keep it strong and donate today. It would be so great if you would donate today because our fundraiser is ending in 24, now 25 hours. So please make the phone call right now so we don't end it without you. And you will include yourself as as, uh, some of the benefactors of WBUR, those who know that we appreciate what you pledge whether it be a modest amount, whether it be a a large amount, whatever you can pledge, it means that you're invested in what we do, invested in the outcome, which we all benefit from. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with Meghna Chakraborty. And just as an example of where your money goes when you you donate, excuse me, or contribute to WBUR, is it goes to helping protect reporters who are reporting from some of the most uh, conflict-ridden and dangerous places in the world. I mean, right now, of course, one of those is the Middle East. And that war, the war between Israel and Hamas right now, uh, from a financial point of view for journalism organizations, it's A, one of the most important stories in the world, and B, one of the most expensive to report. Here's why. Our CEO, Margaret Lowe, talks about um, the costs that go into keeping reporters safe. NPR has sent dozens of reporters to the region, and hostile environment training is a must for journalists going into a conflict zone, whether it's in the Middle East or Ukraine or anywhere things can get dicey. This training takes several days and covers everything from emergency first aid to situational awareness and how to stay as safe as possible, even in the most dangerous places. And on top of that training, reporters, producers, photographers, fixers, translators, and drivers, those are all the people required for this work. All those people need safety equipment. And in the case of frontline coverage near Israel's border with Gaza or Lebanon or inside Gaza and southern Lebanon, each person has to have a ballistic vest with neck and groin protection to protect the carotid and femoral arteries against shrapnel. They also need a ballistic helmet. They need protective eyewear and first aid kits. It's a lot of stuff, and it's expensive. The kind of protective gear needed for an active war zone can cost thousands of dollars a person. And that is something that you probably don't think of. A lot of people, why would you think about it when you think of the coverage that we get here at WBUR from reporters like Iowa Trawi, from uh, Daniel Estrin, from some of the hosts and their producers who've gone over to cover the story, uh, the war between Israel and Hamas. That's that. Those costs are so real, and the need to keep our reporters safe is obviously vital. Keep the drivers safe, uh, keep the fixers safe, and this is a story that we're not going to stop covering until it's basically over. So. It's also one of those stories that we had no idea what happened. I mean, this war broke out 
uh, just after our last fundraiser ended. And we, of course, were talking about stories that we wouldn't expect to come down the pike, and this unfortunately did. And so we're covering it to the best of our ability. And what you contribute helps our ability to cover ambitious and very difficult stories like this. So please make it possible. That's what your pledge does. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And right now, just for about another 51 minutes, you can get your pledge matched. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call to take part or take a uh, the chance to use that opportunity for a dollar-for-dollar match. But as Lisa just said, it ends at 7 o'clock tonight. So now's the time to call 800 800- Nine zero nine nine two eight seven, and you know, going hand in hand with public radios and NPR's um, excellent coverage of news events as they under as they unfold, is I would say the longevity of the coverage, because a lot of news organizations they definitely come when things are at their hottest, but maybe they pull back after a while. They uh, they stop becoming uh, interested in reporting as deeply as they can. Well, NPR and WBUR are not like that. They, we are interested in long-term coverage that brings you the whole story, even if it has to come piece by piece as it unfolds. That's a commitment that we've made and that we will stick to. Your money helps make that possible. 800-909-9287. That's the number to call. Think of all the stories in the news right now that we are following uh, Israel and Hamas, Ukraine and Russia, the local issue of homelessness in Boston and all around the region, uh, opioid abuse. This is uh, all these hard news stories. And then the other stories, the lighter side of life, the stories that make you think about things possibly differently, um, that make you question some of your own assumptions. That's what we know we do well. And you do too. Maybe this is one of the times during the fundraiser when you can think about it and put a dollar value on it. And right now, get that dollar value matched. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington. In a co-production with Speakeasy Stage presents The Band's Visit, the Tony Award-winning musical about surprise connections, shared humanity, and love of music. Coming to the Boston stage for the first time ever from now through December 10th at the Huntington Theatre. Tickets at HuntingtonTheatre.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Every so often, it feels like one topic consumes all of social media. Maybe it's Black Lives Matter, or a few months after that, the presidential election. In these posts, everyone seems to retreat to their corners, taking positions for or against something like abortion. Look, America, you're not James Bond. You don't have a license to kill, which is what you're doing when you have an abortion. Forced pregnancy is literally a war crime, and it shouldn't be forced upon anyone, regardless of socioeconomic status. For two months now, the unavoidable topic on social media has been Israel's war against Hamas in Gaza. And although it can feel like these posts are shouting at each other from opposite sides of an arena, Even people with the strongest disagreements seem to share one central belief. 
This is a PSA that we need shared heavily. People listen very strong right now. You've been lied to. We all have. That belief is, if the post is just compelling enough, it'll change someone's mind. I wondered, is that true? Can the right TikTok or Instagram story or Facebook post actually persuade someone to change their position? Well, in 2020, a group of more than a dozen academics from all over the U.S. looked into this question. I'm Jennifer Pan, a professor of communication at Stanford. I'm Andy Guess, and I'm an assistant professor of politics and public affairs at Princeton University. Professors Pan and Guess were two of the lead authors on a study published in the journal Science. And so what we did as part of the study is offer users on Facebook and Instagram the opportunity to participate. And then we uh, randomly assigned them to a number of interventions that changed their Facebook and Instagram experience. So with the user's permission, the researchers changed the algorithm or the number of reshares people saw or whether people saw dissenting views when they scrolled through their feeds. And part of what we wanted to understand was whether the way in which people were shown content on these platforms affected their opinions and attitudes and beliefs and even downstream political behaviors. Downstream political behaviors like volunteering for or donating to a candidate. And can you say how often you found people in these studies actually changing their mind about something, thinking, well, I had been leaning towards voting for Donald Trump, but instead I think I'm going to vote for Joe Biden or the reverse? We do not find that at all in any of these three studies. Not at all. Not even a small percentage. No change in terms of vote choice. So in other words, when we looked at whether the mix of content that people uh, encountered and consumed and engaged with on these platforms affected what people then told us later on a survey or um, how they voted or whether they voted or the kinds of uh, participation in the campaign that they um, undertook, we we largely found um, very negligible impacts. Very negligible. But hey, political views can be hard to change, especially with candidates as different as Trump and Biden. So is it possible that if researchers used a topic where positions were less entrenched, people might be more likely to change their views? Yeah, so what we did is an online survey experiment in which we varied the number of likes and retweets that people see on a particular message. And these opinions were opinions about sort of COVID policies. Economist Juan Morales of Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, Canada, did his study early in the pandemic. People were just forming their opinions about the right balance between public health and the economy. He and his co-researchers used social media posts that said things like, wearing masks saves lives, or time to reopen safely, those sorts of things. So imagine now that we show you a set of tweets, and all the tweets that are, let's call them pro-economy, have a high number of likes, and all the tweets that are pro-public health have a low number of likes. And then we show another group of individuals and we show them the opposite. Hmm. And then at the end of the study, we asked people, what do you think about closing businesses? What do you think about prohibiting gatherings? So did a lot of likes and retweets make a difference? What we find is that on average, the answer is no. 
Like the other studies, there are nuances and variations when you drill down into the findings. But when you look at the top line conclusions, all of this research pretty much lands in a similar place. Journalist Max Fisher went through piles of these studies for his recent book. I am the author of The Chaos Machine, the inside story of how social media rewired our mind and our world. Is it possible to say just like, yes, no, do social media posts change people's minds about things? So just looking at a post, no, not really. But interacting on social media, posting to a platform, getting feedback in the form of likes, shares, and replies, posting again over many cycles, that has been demonstrated to as something that can change your mind in ways that are very powerful, but also pretty narrow. Whoa. So you're saying a person seeing social media posts might not be affected by it, but the person who's actually doing the posting might change their mind as a result of posting? Oh, yeah. I mean, the platforms are designed. I mean, you have to remember, if people don't post on social media platforms, they're just empty. So they are designed to make you feel a compulsion to post on it and to have a very emotional experience when you post and when you get those responses from other people on the platform, like shares, retweets. And that is something because it taps into your social instincts that in any other context, we would call it a form of training. Help me understand this, because I might post to social media, the best part of a holiday meal is the side dishes, which is a belief I hold, and I'm posting it because I believe it. So how would posting that somehow change my opinion that side dishes are the best part of a holiday meal? Well, first of all, that's misinformation, and you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> So if you are posting about how great side dishes are and you get a thousand retweets and 3000 likes on that, you are going to feel this jolt of social affirmation that is way beyond anything that our brains have evolved for, right? Because our brains evolved for these very small communities, but in social media, we're in these huge communities, we get this instant feedback and that the scale of that social feedback will make you internalize that belief in the importance of Thanksgiving side dishes way more strongly than you'd had it before. So I won't suddenly become an advocate for the main course. But if my opinion that side dishes are the best had been a seven, I might become a 10. I'll get more dug in. And at the same time, if people start arguing with you, as I would, because you're egregiously wrong, that actually the main courses are the best part, then that back and forth in that interaction, because I would have lots of people retweeting, you know, my post getting mad at you, you would have lots of people liking your post getting mad at me, would polarize you much more strongly against main courses than you were before. And that gets to your question about can social media change your mind? We're not going to change each other's minds. You're not going to believe that main courses are the best. I'm not going to believe that side dishes are the best because of our interactions, but we are both going to hold much stronger versions of those views. So here's the insidious part. Not only does posting on social media push our own views to the extremes. It will make your ability to empathize with people who have the other opinion drop down to a zero, which is not that relevant. We're talking about Thanksgiving, but you're talking about politics. Having a more extreme war form of your pre-existing views can be pretty consequential. And we're also going to feel much more polarized so the research shows that this entire social media cycle of feeling attacked by some and affirmed by others shrinks our ability to feel compassion for those who disagree with us, which raises a deeper question. If posting about current events on social media won't change someone else's mind, why do we keep doing it? 
So, I mean, part of it is that social media creates a compulsion to post on it. And this is something that has been proven in many studies. It's chemically addictive. But I think there's also a more human reason that we're all looking for a sense of agency. I mean, especially when the news is really scary, when there's something really big and terrible happening, like the conflict between Israel and Gaza, we want to feel a sense of you know, control, like we're doing something, we have some agency over what's happening. And when we post on it, everything about how the platforms work, tell us that we're, we're playing an incredibly important role, that we're doing something, that it really matters. So we post because social media makes us feel better until it doesn't. Right. And this is something they also show in studies over and over where people feel really distressed about the news that makes them much likelier to post, but then posting makes them feel more distressed. It often does not actually ease that sense of, you know, existential anxiety that led you to post in the first place. It's a bit like scratching a mosquito bite. The impulse is understandable. The momentary relief feels good. But longer term, scratching that itch won't help you heal. Nelson Mandela, the anti-apartheid icon, died 10 years ago today at the age of 95. He was South Africa's first democratically elected president, and he remains a larger-than-life figure in the country. But as Kate Bartlett reports, Mandela's African National Congress Party is failing to live up to his legacy. It's widely predicted to lose its majority in the upcoming election. Neo Makhopa, a writer from the Nelson Mandela Foundation, described some of the current problems facing the country. With an upward of 60% youth unemployment, the education crisis, gender-based violence, our energy crisis, young people don't feel saved, especially young people growing up in townships and other poorer areas. But despite South Africa's challenges, which most blame on the ruling ANC, this 10-year-old girl, born the year Mandela died, sums his legacy up neatly. I am Olvete Flamini. Nelson Mandela was the first black president in South Africa. And just because of him, we live in this nice world. For NPR News, I'm Kate Bartlett in Johannesburg. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. It was a lackluster day on Wall Street today. The Dow lost two-tenths of a percent. S&P fell less than one-tenth of a percent. The Nasdaq gained ground. It was up three-tenths of a percent. A digital health platform is acquiring a local at-home consumer testing business. I'm Aware says its acquisition of Cambridge-based Binks Health will expand its position in the home health testing market. Binks is the maker of the first FDA-approved system that detects a sexually transmitted infection chlamydia and gonorrhea in a single visit. In the forecast overnight tonight, look for lots of clouds, about 30 degrees for a low. We may wake up to a little bit of snow on the ground tomorrow, not more than an inch or so, depending on where you are. Any flurries should end by noontime, then cloudy skies, temperatures in the mid-30s tops tomorrow. That's where it is right now, 35 degrees in Boston at 624. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by St. Francis House, working to solve the area's homelessness crisis by providing comprehensive care to adults experiencing homelessness. stfrancishouse.org And Fresh City Kitchen, with a goal of delivering holiday catering everyone will keep talking about. freshcitykitchen.com
This is 90.9 WBUR. We've got important news for you, and that is news that probably many people will want to hear. The fundraiser is over tomorrow in just 24 and a half hours, but we still need a considerable amount to get to the end of this fundraiser successfully. We'll get an update on that amount. I'm just told it's $160,000. That is a lot. I think it is doable, especially given everybody who's out there who has yet to pledge Please remember that we cannot do this without you, and every pledge from everyone counts. So please make your pledge right now, a special reason to give right now. It's one of the times we are lucky enough to have some Morrow Society members who are offering up their money, so we have a dollar-for-dollar match on the table. 1-800-909-9287. That is the number to call to take advantage of this match and Allow your money to work twice as hard to help keep WBUR strong. It is a dollar-for-dollar match, again, but it's only going on for another 35 minutes. Now, you know, I know that we've covered uh, uncertainties about the economy for quite some time. It's an important part of our coverage. But to be perfectly honest, that uncertainty You know, it falls here on WBUR as well because we get it. (laughs) Things aren't maybe as guaranteed or if as they once felt, even if they never were. But having um, kind of an unsteadiness beneath our feet has become part of our, our reality, too. But you can help keep WBUR as steady as possible. And here's how our CEO, Margaret Lowe, talks about it. We have tens of thousands of supportive listeners, members, people who tell us that we're their lifeline, that even on the hardest news days, we remind them of their humanity. But the truth is, it's gotten harder and harder to find new members, and that scares us. I mean, it definitely keeps me up at night. Stations across the country are experiencing the same decline in the number of donors at a time when we know trustworthy information is so crucial to our collective well-being. So. My hope is that our listeners can help us buck this trend. We know that many of you listening spend more time with WBUR than you do with some of the people you love most. We also know that there are so many good causes to support. But if we matter in your life at all, if you can't imagine a day or a week without WBUR and NPR, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear from you, including those of you who've never before given to WPUR, whether you're a longtime listener or you just discovered the station. Perhaps you came to a city space event or saw something at WBUR.org or listened to The Common, or maybe you and your children listened to Circle Round on WBUR. All of this comes at a cost, and you are those who help us defray those costs more than any other entity. It's not commercial dollars. It's not even underwriting as much as we appreciate our underwriters, the local businesses who underwrite us. It is you, in aggregate, our listeners. A small contribution would be great if you can afford a large contribution That would go even further right now because it's a dollar-for-dollar match that's on the table. So if you can make a one-time contribution of, say, $1,000, $2,000, we can double that. If you can make a monthly contribution, $10, $15, $50, we will double that as well. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. 1-800-909-9287. And you know... When we repeat the number often and much more frequently, you know that we're headed towards the end of the fundraiser. It's not tonight. It is tomorrow night, 24 hours from now. But that just that means there's a day, barely a day and a night left for us to hit our goal. 
and uh, finish strong with this year-end fundraiser. So help us do that now. Help us take advantage of of that dollar-for-dollar dollar match. It makes your money doubly effective. And so again, that number to call is 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Being a part of this mission that we have at WBUR to help keep democracy strong by keeping the information that is the lifeblood of that democracy strong and reliable. I think it's important. We believe it's important. And we know you do, too, because you listen to WBUR. So back that up with a contribution to help this station continue to provide the services that you count on for not just for you, but for your community. So 800 Nine zero nine nine two eight seven. You know, there's a saturation of media out there, but trustworthy, as Magna said, trustworthy local news sources are vanishing, and journalism is in free fall just at a time when we need quality, responsible, even-handed journalism. Newsrooms are closing, and what is growing is noise. You're not going to get that from us. We are not here to get a rise out of you. We're not here to uh, put social media posts on that are designed to basically set off dynamite. That's not what we're all about. We're about telling you responsible, accountable news that will enrich your life. So we hope you'll pay for it. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Emerson Colonial Theater. With Just For Us, Alex Edelman's one-man show returns to Boston direct from Broadway. December 15th through 17th. EmersonColonialTheater.com. 